This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com. It's been said that all roads lead to God. And this makes a certain amount of sense. In life, there are a thousand different ways to get where we're going. Winding scenic paths, wide, fast highways. We can walk or ride, drive or fly. Wrong turns and detours may slow us down, but sooner or later we make it. We get where we want to go. But there is a flaw in this way of thinking. The path to God is no road at all. It is a person. Today, I want to talk with you about why Jesus needed to die. Why did there need to be a crucifixion? Why did he need to die such a horrible death? You can pull your notes out for the message today if you wish to do that. All around the world today, as I said a little earlier in the service, Christians are celebrating what is called Palm Sunday. It's it's a celebration based on the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem just before he was crucified. Here's what uh, Luke's gospel says happened in Luke chapter 19. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over over the the colt for him to ride on. And as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when they reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and to sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest heaven. You know, the final week of Jesus' life could not have started out better. A celebration, a parade, unplanned. It just was an instantaneous response from the people who were waiting to see what Jesus would do, to hear what Jesus would say. But what started out as a parade on Sunday ended in a crucifixion by Friday. And really, when you stop and think about it, that's only a couple of days between the two. It's hard to believe that the triumph on Sunday could turn so sour so quickly, but it did. Some people look at Friday as a grand mistake on the part of God. They think that maybe Jesus kind of brought it on himself by the way he always challenged the religious leaders so very directly and so very pointedly and challenged them he did. Listen to what he said to them in Matthew chapter 23. He said, Woe to you, Pharisees, you religious leaders. You are like beautiful mausoleums full of dead men's bones and of foulness and corruption. In other words, he's saying you look beautiful on the outside, but you really stink. 
That's not the best way to go around getting a following, is telling people that's what you think of them. That's not the best way to keep the parade going. You know, you can go to almost any graveyard here in the United States and see all sorts of grave markers from cheap headstones with maybe barely a comment mentioned about the deceased who's buried beneath it to beautifully ornate mausoleums, uh, kind of like stone statues costing probably tens of thousands of dollars and everything in between. Recently, I was down in Tombstone, Arizona, where I took a, a few moments to uh, go to the, the graveyard of the town of Tombstone, Arizona. You know what Tombstone is. That's where uh, the famous shootout between the Clayton's, uh, Clanton's rather, and the Earps took place. And while I was there, I did visit the cemetery. And, and here are just a few uh, of, uh, pictures that I took of the cemetery when I was there. This one says, Billy Clanton killed October 26, 1881. So he was part of the gang the Earps killed. Next one says, uh, Newman Haynes, old man Clayton, killed in August of 1881. And then uh, just one more that I took. It says, uh, I need to turn around and look this way. John Heath taken from county jail and lynched by, Bisbee, by the Bisbee mob, whoever they were, in Tombstone, February 22nd, 1884. Now, none of these markers that I show you right here are of the elegant style or the elegant type. They weren't very ornate at all. Uh, Carrie's father, when we first started dating, worked for the city of Newton, Kansas. How many of you know where Newton, Kansas is? There's a few of you that do. All right, it's just, it's, it, it, it's a nothing town, so you don't need to worry about it. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. It produced, I, I took what the best thing they produced. Right there she is, you know, and I took her out of there. But it's a, it's a wonderful little community, about 15,000 people or so. And, and her dad was the kind of the cemetery manager of, of the Newton Cemetery back in that day. And so I took occasion to, whenever we'd go visit her folks, you know, to walk around and just kind of look, because it's interesting in some of these old uh, cemeteries, some of the people who've been buried there, they go back a long, long ways. And it's really interesting to read some of the epitaphs that they have on some of the headstones and so forth. Today, Carrie's father and her mother and her sister are all buried in that same cemetery. And if you go around that cemetery, what you'll find is what I'm talking about right here, grave markers that were obviously for the very poor, like, like these people were, you know, and so they weren't much to look at. Uh, maybe looking like, like they've been ignored. Some of them you can barely read the, the, whatever saying was on them anymore because they're so old and the sand, uh, sandstorms and stuff have just kind of worn off the etching and, and maybe they, they even look really, really cheap. And then there are markers for the rich, obviously very rich people that were placed in that cemetery as well. And most of those are tall and they're very impressive and probably very expensive. But I was thinking about, do you know what all those people buried beneath, beneath whatever marker they have over them, do you know what all of them have in common, whether they're poor or whether they're rich? Do you know what they all have in common? They're dead. <laughs> Doesn't matter how much money you have, that's where you're going. And, 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 and we, all know that, that we all know that that is true. It doesn't matter what kind of headstone they put over you, you're still dead laying underneath there. And what Jesus was saying to these Jewish leaders and Pharisees uh, uh, at, at, in that scripture that I just read to you is just as true today as it was back then. 
We can give so much attention. This is what he's saying to them. You can give so much attention to the outside. You can make it look so pure. You can make it look so religious. You can make it look so pious. You can make it look so good on the outside, and yet inside you're full of dead men's bones. You're dead. There's no life within you. And that's true spiritually as well as physically. We can have all of the religious rules and rituals down pat and yet be lost to God. Spiritually dead on the inside. And that was the problem with those Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. And, and really, it's the same problem most religious people still have today. All over the world, religious and pious, and following the rules, and they do everything that's required of them on the outside, proper and acceptable by, by their group that they hang with, but spiritually, they're dead on the inside. But just like people today, people in Jesus' day didn't like being called hypocrites either. And that's really what he was calling these religious leaders in that scripture I read. In fact, Jesus not only said that once, he said it several times. In Matthew chapter 20, 23, Jesus called them snakes, sons of vipers. And then he said, how shall you escape the judgment of hell? Wow. Well, they didn't like that. And so they started planning together on how they could take care of this new prophet that's shown up called Jesus. And Matthew 26 tells us that at that very moment, the chief priests and the other Jewish officials were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, to do one thing, to discuss ways of capturing Jesus quietly and killing him. And by Friday of that week, just a few days after the big parade, they had carried out their plan. Jesus was arrested. Jesus was tried. Jesus was beaten. The very voices that had cheered him on Sunday were now calling for his crucifixion, and he had been crucified. Some people look at that and they think that's God's big mistake. This was a huge calculation on the part of God to have allowed Jesus to be crucified. Because the fact is, with what he was riding on, the popularity he was riding on on Sunday, he could have been crowned king of the whole nation had he just played the game. 
But Jesus didn't come into the world to wear a king's crown. He came into the world to die. That's amazing. Most martyrs, they accept their martyrdom, but they don't know for sure it's coming. Jesus knew from the very beginning that he would die. In fact, he predicted it. Luke chapter 18 tells us that he took the 12 disciples aside and he said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the prediction of the prophets concerning the Son of Man. Son of Man is a reference that Jesus, a title Jesus made of himself. You'll see it throughout the Gospels. The predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans. He will be mocked, treated shamefully, spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him, but on the third day he will rise again. His death was, a, was not a grand mistake. I don't think that this was in any way a miscalculation by God. In fact, it, there are two interesting things that I see in that portion of Scripture, those verses I just read that jump out to me. The first thing I see is that he said his death would fulfill the prediction of the prophets. His death would fulfill what had been prophesied about Messiah. God had been telling his people for centuries through the prophets that a Messiah was coming. But he was coming not to reign, he was coming to die. The Jewish leaders knew the prophecies on the coming Messiah, but they focused almost entirely on the coming of the Messiah, ignoring almost entirely the fact of his death. But whether they believed it or ignored it, his death wasn't a mistake on that Friday. The prophetic word had gone forth. The, prof the prophets had predicted it. And the second thing that jumps out to me in that portion of Scripture we just read is that this is actually the third time Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be killed and rise from the dead. But they never got it. They never understood what he was talking about. Verse 34 a little further down in the chapter, tells us that they still didn't get it. They, they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from him, from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. What I'm saying today is that the death of Jesus on that Friday was not a mistake. It was part of God's plan. It's part of why Jesus came. But the question that comes to my mind is why? Why did Jesus have to die? And if death was necessary, why such a horrific death? I want to share three thoughts with you on why I believe the parade of Sunday turned into the crucifixion of Friday. First of all, only Jesus' awful death could show us how awful our sin is. I want you to get it in your heart that God is doing to Jesus what our sins deserve. The cross was horrific. So is our sin. The cross was agonizing to Christ. Our sin is agonizing to God. And we need to understand that. Sometimes it seems that people feel like it's no big deal that they have sinned. And, and that some people seem to feel like it's no big deal to jump. It's not a big jump out of spiritual darkness and spiritual death and spiritual lostness over to spiritual life. But we need to rethink that entirely. 
The bridge that got us from lostness to being found is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a huge deal that Jesus saved us. It's a huge deal that God would accept us. The cross was so horrific because our sin is so horrific to God. It required a horrific sacrifice. So when Jesus hung on that cross, the Bible tells us that the Father withdrew from him and Jesus cried out for the first time in his life, Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook his son in that moment because the sin he was bearing was so awful, was so ugly, was so horrific, his holy father could no longer look upon it. I want you to realize that every sin that has ever been committed was put on the on the shoulder of shoulders of Jesus as he hung on that cross. Every lie that's ever been told, every murder that's ever taken place, everything that the Nazis did to the Jews, and on and on and on we could go. Every vile thing one man has ever done to another was put on Jesus Christ that day he hung on the cross. Any gruesome or appalling act that you can imagine with your mind, in your, in your mind's eye was placed upon him, and that's why the Father pulled away. That's why the Father withdrew. The cross was not just some religious act that quickly and easily cleansed the human condition. It was beyond description and beyond the Father's tolerance. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin, get this, to be sin for us so that we might make the grand transfer from sin to righteousness, that we might become the righteousness of God so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the failure that we have been. He sees the righteous covering of his son Jesus over us as his born-again people. Hallelujah. The love that God had for us sent his son to become what is unthinkable. He who never sinned became sin. He became a sin offering. Why? So that we might become righteous before God. Years ago, I received a, a letter from a lady mocking the cross. And this is what she wrote. Well, I'll just tell you, it was a long letter, but just a, a little portion of that letter. She said to me, if God wanted to really torture Jesus, he would not have had him uh, crucified. He would have had him burned to death. But I told her, I wrote her back, and I said, you do not understand. A burning death would certainly be a terrible death, but our sin required a blood sacrifice to cover it. How do I know that? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 makes it clear, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So what the Jewish religious customs foreshadowed took place in Jesus. The, the innocent lambs, the innocent goats, the innocent bulls and oxen that were sacrificed for the sins of the people of Israel, that was a foreshadowing. But those animals gave their life because of the sins of the people of Israel and they foreshadowed the perfect lamb that would come one day who would shed his blood for not just the sins of Israel, but the sins of the whole world, which includes the people of Salt Lake City, Utah, in 2017. I told her burning would not have given that. 
And while it would have been an incredibly painful death, still it would have been a relatively quick death in minutes. But the cross involved hour upon hour upon hour of torture. It was death in slow speed. So why did Jesus need to die a horrific death? Because our sin was so, is so horrific. Secondly, only Jesus' death could break hell's grip off of our lives. Religion never, has never set anyone free. Good intentions will not work. We need the power of God to change us from the inside out. Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 tells us about God's power over our worst enemy, death. Jesus said, I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of the grave. The greatest enemy that we face on this earth is our own mortality. God's Word clearly tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is, is Satan's do domain. Jesus said about Satan in John 10.10 10, that his only purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy. Death is in Satan's DNA. It's his final assault against us, and he uses it to mock us. We all know that we will face it someday. But when Jesus died and rose again, he stripped Satan of his power over death by rising from that grave. He knew that his sacrifice on the cross was acceptable by God. And so what used to be uh, our final defeat is now for the believer simply a transfer out of this world to the next, from here to eternity, from the land of the dying to the land of the living. Hallelujah. For those who know Jesus as Savior, I didn't say religious people, I said those who are born again into the family of God, death has no victory. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we are not afraid, but are quite content to die, for, when, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So this is what you need to understand. If you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, you've given him your heart and your soul. When the day comes that you breathe your last upon this planet, your body may die and go in that grave, whether it's a, a beautiful mark, marker above your body or, or not, it won't matter because your spirit is going to go immediately into the presence and so shall you ever be with the Lord. Hallelujah. So that means that death has no victory over you any longer. Jesus has given every believer victory over every enemy that we face in life, including death. I want to take it to where you're, where you're at right now because most of you are not dead in here. So I want to talk to you who are living. If Jesus conquered our greatest enemy, death, just think about what he's able to do with any other enemy that comes against you. I want you to know and I want you to hear me clearly, there is no addiction that Jesus cannot handle in your life. There is no stronghold from hell that he cannot break. There is no disease. There's no sickness that he cannot heal. There's no marriage he can't repair. And there's no sin he can't or won't forget. forgive. The death of Jesus broke the powerful grip of hell off of our lives. Hallelujah. 
The third thing I want to tell you is that only Jesus' death could make possible new life. When you surrender yourself to Jesus and you let him rule and reign in your life, a change takes place. And I'm not talking about the fact that you just show up for church in, on an hour, uh, for an hour on Sunday mornings when you used to just sleep during this time. That's not the change I'm talking about. A change takes place that's glorious. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us when someone becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. Religion can't do that. He is not the same anymore. A new life has begun. Hallelujah. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says, For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Listen, when you give your heart to Jesus, everything is possible as far as what God can do through you and for you and with you and in you. Hallelujah. How do we get this new life? We get it by dying with Jesus. Now, we're not talking about literally dying. We're not going to pass any Kool-Aid out today. <laughs> because this is what I know. Dying physically does not give you new life. There are many people who have died who were away from God, and they have not walked into eternity into new life. What Paul is talking about here is dying on the inside, dying to that inner you that has held control over you for all of your life, that inner part of you that's been away from God, that's run from God, that part of you that so easily does what's wrong instead of what's right. When you die to that, God says new potential begins to take place in your life. A new life is born within, and it's going to sprout a new harvest. Only this new harvest isn't going to be sin and evil anymore. It's going to be the righteousness of God. It's going to be you doing stuff for God you never thought you could do, and all your old friends are going to say, what happened to you? They might say, what's wrong with you? And you'll say, nothing's wrong with me. I've been forgiven. The hold the devil had on me, he ain't got no more. Hallelujah. Jesus said in John chapter 12, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new life. New life. Jesus was not giving an agricultural lesson here. These people all knew that. We all know that that's true. You plant a seed, the seed sprouts, becomes a plant, and produces a harvest far greater than the single seed. But unless that seed is planted, that one seed is planted and dies, the rest won't happen. The harvest will not happen. Do you know if you plant one kernel of corn, that that one kernel of corn will produce a new plant that will average 700 new kernels of corn on every cob that that plant produces. From that one will come literally thousands of new seeds. Again, we're not talking about agriculture here. We're talking about a life that's willing to die on the inside so that you might multiply yourself and become far more than you ever dreamed possible. Because the same principle is true for our lives. When we die to ourselves, when we give Jesus control of our lives, what dies on the inside, as hard as that is to kill that in there, as hard as it is to give up 
some of the things that you loved before but that were killing you. When that dies on the inside and you finally surrender, it becomes fertile ground for an explosion of new life and potential you never thought you had. So many who are in this church right now have given testimony to us of how God has changed them. Old habits have been broken, not by a religion, but by Jesus, the Son of God. Old worries have been calmed, not by a religion, but by Jesus, the Son of God. Old guilt is now gone because of Jesus, the Son of God. It's Jesus' death that makes that possible. His death and then our willingness to die to ourselves and live for him secures a future for us that is beyond belief. It's what Jesus called in John 10.10, life in all its fullness. Wow. Put your imagination, put your imagination, get it going. Get that imagination going. What does life in all its fullness mean? Think your highest thoughts. You're only scratching the surface of what God is able to do in and through your life because you've made him king and Lord over your life. So you say, okay, how do I die to myself? Where do, what line do I sign? What card do I fill out? There's no card to fill out. There's no church to join that produces this. You don't do it by joining a church. According to God's word, it's a matter of your heart. Now, that doesn't mean it's something insignificant and small because what you do with your heart so changes you completely, you become a different person on the outside. But it starts with the heart. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus said, I followed all the rules. What do I lack? He says, you've got to be born again. You can follow all the rules, but if you haven't been born again, the rules won't save you. It's when you're born again. So my mother gave me human life. The death of Jesus gives us spiritual life, and it's a spiritual birth. And what happens is we become a part of his family. There's a big lie that goes around, and you've all heard it. It's, it, it most people don't mean it as a lie. They think it's right, but it's not true. And the lie is this, that all of humanity... We're all God's children. You ever heard that? People say that all the time. We're all God's children. Nowhere in the Bible is that stated. What the Bible teaches us is that we're all God's creation. But to be in the family means you've got to be born again. You're not part of the family just because you're a human being. You're a part of the family because you've been born again. And when you make Jesus Savior, you receive him into your life. Well, let me let God's word speak for itself. John 1, 12. But to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. All they needed to do was trust him to save them. It doesn't matter how much money you've got. It doesn't matter what family you came from, what your education is. All you have to do is trust him. What does that mean? It simply means you're saying to God, I accept Jesus as Savior and Lord 
The word Lord means he's the owner. As Savior and Lord of my life from this day forward. Coming up to about 45 years ago, Carrie and I made the same kind of basic covenant to one another. I set myself apart for her. She set herself apart for me. She became my Lord. <clears throat> no, um, my wife. <laughs> I got confused for just a second. I was thinking about yesterday. No, no, she, she became <laughs> my wife. Pray for me, folks. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> Anybody want to take me home for lunch? <laughs> I think I'd rather go with you. No. But we made that covenant to one another, and part of the covenant was forsaking all others. And so I wear this ring here on my finger, and every time I look at it, I remember forsaking all others. And it doesn't matter if temptation comes along or not, forsaking all others. This is the commitment. This is the word. God gives you an, a, 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 an engagement ring when you give your heart to Jesus because you become part of not only his body, but the typology of the bride of Christ. We become the bride of Christ too, but we're not married yet. And so he gives us an engagement ring. And that engagement ring is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit becomes the, the security of our relationship with God and when we make this commitment to him we're not making a commitment to a religion we're making a commitment to Jesus Christ and we're saying Jesus I'm going to forsake all others that means I'm not going to do some of the stuff I used to do I'm not going to go some of the places I used to go I'm going to say no to some stuff not because it still isn't attractive, because the flesh will always be attracted to that, but because I made a promise forsaking all others. This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com.